There's an idiom in the English language, a figure of speech, if you will, that goes like this, let's not stand on ceremony. Let's not stand on ceremony here. What does that figure of speech, what does that idiom mean? How do we use it? Well, typically, when someone uses that idiom, let's not stand on ceremony, what they're doing is they're ignoring formal customs for the, sp- for the sake of expediency or comfortability. You're ignoring kind of unwritten rules because it just in this particular situation, we don't, we don't really need to adhere to that right now. So let me just give you one example. Uh, we've had potluck Sundays before, and obviously it's kind of this an unwritten rule. It's polite, it's gentlemanly to let women go first. And so we do that every potluck Sunday. Women eat, get to eat first. And I noticed uh, every now and then during one of our potlucks, there will be women who are just busy. You know, they're holding kids or they're having a conversation and some of the men will be sitting at the table waiting to eat. And the women will say, just go ahead. Like, like please, we're going to talk, just go ahead. What are they essentially saying? They're saying, let's, let's not stand on ceremony. Like, I, I appreciate you kind of trying to adhere to this formal custom and be polite, but let's not. You're okay. I won't be offended. Just go eat, right? And so to not stand on ceremony is to recognize that there are, there are customs, there are rules that are meaningful and they matter, but there are some times where we just, let's just not do that. And believe it or not, as sacrilegious as it might sound, I think there's a time and place for that in religion. I think there's a time and place in the Christian religion where sometimes our ceremonies, or maybe better yet, how we think our ceremonies are supposed to be applied, actually get in the way. And that sometimes it's better to not stand on ceremony. I think we will try to flesh this out a little bit more with our text today in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21? We are going to read a much shorter portion of this chapter than we normally have been. Uh, Because I think there's something really important in these few verses. First Samuel chapter 21, we will read verses 1 through 7. If you would follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women... And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. And how much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, destined before, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So let's stop with those short seven verses, and let's just briefly summarize. If you remember, so we took a break last week, so we're talking two weeks ago. David is officially a fugitive. David is on the run from Saul. Uh, Saul is trying to kill David, and he has really nowhere to go. 
So the first place that David decides to go is he decides to flee to a city of Nob, which would have been pretty close to where he was, only a couple miles out. And clearly what we see from this text is Nob has kind of become the new holy city. It was Shiloh, but Shiloh was desecrated by the Philistines way back in the beginning of the book. And so clearly we see now that David has, or that Israel has established a new holy city, the city of Nob. This is where the tabernacle is. This is where the priests reside. And so David goes to the tabernacle and he approaches the priest there, Ahimelech, and Ahimelech smells something fishy from the very get-go. Just the, the whole circumstance just doesn't look right to him. Why is holy David, royal David, approaching me all by himself? Uh, he, just, he just knows something is not right here. That's why he comes out trembling, like, what is going on here? And David appeases him by lying. David lies about why he's there. Uh, we're not going to get into this issue of righteous deception. I'm not even claiming that this is necessarily is an instance of righteous deception. But I would just encourage you yet again, we've seen this time and time again throughout this book. I preached a sermon called Righteous Deception that is still on the website, which kind of deals with why we're seeing so many people in 1 Samuel deceiving or lying. And I would argue, I'm not going to make that case today, but I would argue that the New Testament actually vindicates what David did here. So I don't actually think David sinned, but it's a difficult case. Scholars will debate that. I'm not saying anything dogmatically. Um, but again, just to hear an introduction to the crazy idea that maybe it's actually okay to sometimes deceive people, I would just refer you back to that sermon. Uh, but we will press on. The point is, is David lies, whether right or wrong, he makes up a story. And it's, it's, we can speculate as to why he would do this. Um, there's a couple good reasons we don't know which one is which. So one, part of it may be to protect Ahimelech. So David knows Saul is trying to kill David, and Saul's most likely going to kill anyone who is supporting David or harboring David or helping David. And so the second David tells Ahimelech the truth, Ahimelech now becomes a conspirator. And so maybe to protect... So now Ahimelech can... If Saul ever approaches him, which he will, um, Ahimelech, Ahimelech can truly say in his heart of hearts, I, I, I had no idea. He told me that you sent him to me. I didn't, I, I wasn't trying to protect a fugitive. I was just helping a holy man who you sent. So it may have been to protect Ahimelech. It also may have been because he didn't trust Ahimelech. And the reason he may not have trusted Ahimelech is because Ahimelech has a brother, Ahitub, and Ahitub is the advisor who replaced Samuel after Samuel abandoned Saul. So Ahimelech has a brother who's very close with Saul. And so maybe Ahimelech's on Saul's team and he's going to rat me out. He's not going to help me. So we don't know David's intentions, why he didn't just be honest and tell the priest what's happening, trying to protect him or didn't trust him. Um, but we know that David approaches him alone. The priest doesn't know what's going on here and David makes up a story. It's possible that there were more people with David, that he actually had a small posse that was hiding out. And the reason I say that, we'll look at this text later on, but when Jesus talks about this text, he talks about a whole group of men being fed. And so what that tells us is either there was a group of men that didn't approach the, the temple with David, but they were with David, uh, that 1 Samuel leaves out. Or it tells us that Jesus was just speaking through Ahimelech's perspective, because David tells Ahimelech, like, I'm, I'm, I need food, for, I'm meeting up with some men and we need food. So Ahimelech thought he was feeding a group that David was with or meeting up with. So we don't quite know the details. It's, so in other words, all I'm saying is it's possible that there was a small group of, of people with David, but we know that they didn't approach Ahimelech with David, right? David approached Ahimelech alone, and he lies and he makes up this story. 
And, and he, the reason he goes to the temple in the first place is because he's in need of two very basic provisions, food and protection. He needs food and protection. And why do I say protection? Let's finish and let's read through verse 9 for a moment. It's beginning in verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then you have not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. So we see David's two needs. I need bread. I'm hungry. We're hungry. I need food. And I need a sword. And as a matter of fact, it's possible, again, this is more speculation. It's possible this is why he went to the temple, because he knew Goliath's sword was there, and he knew that was what he needed. So he may have gone there with that in mind. But again, we don't know all the details. All we know is that David is in desperate need. He's in need of a sword. He's in need of bread. And so he goes to the priest, and the priest provides him with his needs. He gives them the sword that David killed Goliath with, but he also gives them the bread. And this is where things get interesting because the priest himself is very clear that the bread that he had is not, the text says, common bread. It's holy bread. What is that a reference to? We're not going to turn there today, but you can write down in your Bibles if you want Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. Although the holy bread shows up in many places in the Bible, Leviticus 24 is where it's given the longest explanation. But God had set up for the Jews that in, not in the Holy of Holies, but in the holy place that's not in the Holy of Holies, there was a golden table. And on this golden table, constantly before the presence of the Lord, there needed to be 12 loaves of bread, and they would be anointed with holy oil. And by the way, these loaves, if you read in Leviticus 24, were made with so much flour. Like, don't think of like our little pieces of bread or a little tortilla. They were, they were quite large. Very, very large loaves of bread. And the text tells us there'd be 12 of them to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and their covenant with the Lord. And then they would be sanctified. And then that bread became for the priests. And Leviticus 24 says the bread is for Aaron, for his sons, and it's only for the priests. And what they would do is it would sit all week before the Lord, and then on the Sabbath, they would replace it with hot bread, and then the bread that they took off would be for them to eat. And again, Leviticus 24 says it's only for the priests. So it's holy, it's sanctified, it's not common, it's not for the lay people, it's not for the common people, it's for the priests, it's for the sons of Aaron. And so David shows up and he's hungry and he's destitute and he needs food and all the priest has is the holy bread which is only for the priests. And what does he do? Verse 6, so the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So, the priest broke the law of God, right? The priest even says it's the holy bread for the priest. It's not for David. It's not for common people. It's not for kings. It's for the priest. And yet, he gives him. He recognizes the dire situation of David. Ahimelech recognizes this. And he gives him the holy loaves. Now, he doesn't reject God's law altogether. Because if you notice, there was another ceremonial law in the Old Testament about cleanliness. And it was very clear that a man who has laid with his wife is unclean until he is washed. And in the Old Testament, it was very clear that a man who was unclean in that way, anything he touched would become unclean. 
If he got on a, on a horse, that saddle was unclean. If he touched anything at all, it'd be unclean. So the priest is, Ahimelech is still concerned with the law of God. He's not just throwing it out the window. He, he wants to make sure the men are clean before they take it. And my assumption is that he maybe believed that if they took the holy bread unclean, it would affect the whole temple. That's my assumption. I don't know for sure. So he, again, he's not just like this, this reckless, immoral priest who just disregards the law of God. He cares about the law of God. He cares about honoring it. But for some reason, he believed it's appropriate to take this bread, which David is technically not supposed to eat, and give it to David. To give it to the men, allegedly, that David is with or is meeting up with. And then the only other detail we haven't really discussed is in verse 7. And this is just kind of an ominous detail that will be relevant later on. So we don't need to talk about it today. But just know, it's important to know that there was a Gentile living in this land who was kind of keeping an eye on all of this. And that's going to become important later on. So what do we do with this text? Relatively short text, only nine verses. What do we do with this scenario where the priest sort of seems to break the law of God and gives David this holy bread? Well, the good news is, even though I think there are multiple ways to apply this text, and I'll apply it a different way in the Lord's Supper, but I, I, that my job has been made easy for me because the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in his own earthly ministry, referenced this text to make application. So if, if I have the Lord Jesus talking about 1 Samuel 21, let's just go with what he says about it, shall we? Let's just, let's just go with his application and let him do the heavy lifting for us. So would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12, we will see Jesus briefly reference this scenario. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to read 14 verses. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they thought they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So while Jesus doesn't focus all of his attention on this one instance, we see him very clearly referencing our story in 1 Samuel 21 to make a point against the Pharisees. So what point is Jesus making? Let's make sure we've understood what's happened here. Jesus and his disciples are, in the, are on the Sabbath walking about in a field of grain, probably wheat or barley, and they're hungry. And so they start to pluck the tops off and 
thresh out the seeds and eat. And it was Jewish custom at this point. You see, the, the Old Testament gave us laws about what we could do on the Sabbath and what you couldn't do, but they were kind of general laws against working, laws against harvesting. And so the Jewish leaders over many centuries began to create new traditions. There was the Korban law and the Mishnah and the Talmud, and they started to create all of these applications of God's law, essentially creating in their minds more revelation, a larger Bible. They created extra biblical laws and commandments, and then they enforced them on the consciences of the people. And what you'll find in these many Jewish traditions is one of the densest sections in in this literature are laws about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And it's extensive. It is very, very difficult for a Jewish person to ever truly know if they're honoring the Sabbath or not, if they are abiding by these extra biblical laws. And so one of those laws forbade what the disciples were doing because they went out there and they were hungry and so they would pluck. And then depending on what kind of grain it was, you'd have to do some work to get it out. And the Pharisees, the Jewish law said this, this technically counts as harvesting. You're, you're, you're harvesting grain, you're threshing, you're working. You are, you are agricultural laborers, you are farmers now. And the Sabbath forbids, the Sabbath laws forbid farmers from working on the Sabbath. And you're farmers and you're working, you're harvesting, you're threshing. So they said, you're working on the Sabbath. They accused Jesus and his disciples of sinning, of breaking the Sabbath. And so Jesus rebukes them, and he rebukes them with two arguments sort of blended together. And we're only going to really focus on one of those arguments because I think it's more applicable to the first Samuel situation. But let me just briefly address the other argument, this very famous verse, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. One of the ways that Jesus refutes the Pharisees is just basically by putting them in their place. And he, because he goes off to talk about how the, the Sabbath, there was a lot of laws about the temple. And he says, I'm, I'm the new temple. I'm greater than the temple. And then he declares, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So what is he doing in those two arguments? He's essentially saying, just so you know, uh, I invented the Sabbath. Like, I, I'm the one who made it up. I'm the eternal one who established it and gave it to Moses. And actually to Abraham. Like, uh, Jesus, he's the one who made the Sabbath. So he, his, one of his arguments is an argument from authority. He's basically saying, yeah, I'm God. I'm the one who created the Sabbath. So, yeah, the, the Pharisees do not get to tell me what to do on the Sabbath. The, the Pharisees are not my authority on what's lawful to do on the Sabbath. I'm God. They're not. I created the Sabbath. They didn't. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I decide what's lawful on the Sabbath, not them. So he, he does, in many ways, appeal to his authority, which is a legitimate argument to make. But that's not the only thing he appeals to. He appeals to the authority of Scripture, obviously, by pointing out the laws of, for example, the priests. He, he, he basically goes on to show, you guys have abused these Sabbath laws so strictly that I don't know how you get out of the fact that God calls priests to work on the Sabbath. Are they, defamed? Are they, are they, are they sinning? And people even today will ask this question in, in the Reformed tradition. Our church doesn't practice it nearly as strictly as the Reformed tradition historically has. But the Reformed tradition has made Sunday the Christian Sabbath, and they've forbade people from working on Sundays. And people will say, well, that's not fair because pastors work on Sundays. Right? Like, am I breaking the Sabbath? And that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Your understanding of the Sabbath is so strict, you shouldn't even go to church because now you're forcing the, the priests to work and, and, you know, break the Sabbath. So Jesus is utilizing scripture to prove to them how wrong they are. But one of his other arguments other than authority is primarily an argument from love. 
He appeals to our need in the law of God to love people. He appeals to our need to show mercy. Where do I get that from? And I think this is very applicable to Ahimelech's heart in 1 Samuel 21. But I, I primarily get this from verse 7. What does Jesus say in his rebuke to them? He says this, If you had known what this means, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. So what mistake were the Pharisees making and how they were interpreting and applying the Sabbath laws? Let's look at that a little bit. Jesus quotes this Old Testament verse, and this is an extremely popular verse. It's quoted, it's said multiple times in the Old Testament, and it's cited multiple times in the New Testament. This is a very, very popular verse. So the Pharisees would have known it, like just, just in an academic sense. They, when Jesus said that, they would have recognized, oh, I know that, I know what prophet said that. They've heard it, they've studied it, but Jesus is telling them, you don't truly get it. You, you don't get what the law of God says in this verse. And what does it say? It says that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? This here is functioning as what we call in the English language a metonymy. A metonymy. It's a figure of speech. We, our introduction, we talked about another figure of speech, an idiom. This is another one. It's called a metonymy. There are two figures of speech in the English language that are very, very similar. One is called a synecdoche. And a, syne a synecdoche is when a part stands in for a whole. So a common synecdoche is like if I were carrying around a bunch of boxes. And I said, hey, Brian, could you give me a hand with this? What am I asking for? Am I literally asking for just one single hand? He can't, he can't offer me any other thing other than his one single hand. No, his hand, which is a part of him, is representing all of him. I'm asking for his whole body to come over and help me. Can you give me a hand with this? That's a synecdoche. A metonymy is related, but it's a little different. A metonymy is still where a small thing represents a large thing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a part of that large thing. It just has to be generally related. But you still have this concept of something small representing a larger group. One of the most famous metonymic phrases in the English language, you may have heard this, I don't even know who originally said this, but you may have heard the, the expression, the pen is mightier than the sword. The pen is mightier than the sword. What's that communicating? It's the, the gist of that phrase is to say, you will change culture, you will change people, you will change their hearts primarily through truth, primarily through conversation and communication, not through brute force and violence. If I want you to see things my way, I don't want to put a gun to your head and tell you to see things my way. I want to convince you of it. People respond to truth and to arguments more than to brute force. And that's what it's trying to say. If you want to change the world, speak the truth. You don't pull out your gun. But notice how it's phrased. The pen is mightier than the sword. So does that mean that the only way I can actually be mighty is if I write something with a physical pen? If you write it with a pencil, not mighty. If you type it on a computer, not mighty. If you speak it orally, not mighty. It's got to be a pen. No, obviously it's not saying that. The pen is representing the larger aspect of communication at large. The pen is communication. And the same thing is on the other side with sword, right? The sword, it's not trying to say you won't convince people by holding them at the point of the sword, but you can convince them by holding them at the point of a gun because a gun's not a sword. Right, no, the sword is representing brute violence. It's representing violence at large. So we have small things which are related representing these larger things. I hope that makes sense. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's what God is doing. It's just like the penny is mightier than the sword. Mercy is one aspect of goodness, of love, and it's standing in and representing the whole thing. What does God desire? Not just mercy, but kindness, compassion, love, like all of these things, goodness. God desires mercy, love, kindness, compassion, goodness, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Just put the fruit of the Spirit into that phrase, all of them. And the same thing with sacrifice. What is sacrifice? It's, it's most directly related to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the sacrifices that the people would do. And what you have in the Old Testament regularly is the people's hearts would stray far from God and they would be involved in pagan idolatry. They wouldn't love God, but they would still go to the temple and go through the sacrifices. And that's when God would say things like this. He would say, I hate your sacrifices. They're a burden to me. Stop with the sacrifices. Those sacrifices are not ultimately what he was after, but the sacrifices here are really representing, like mercy, the entire ceremonial system. It's, it's, it's representing all of the ceremonial laws, the sacrifices, the holy bread, the, the not trimming your beard, the not eating shellfish, and the not wearing clothes. Those, those aspects of external religiosity that God gave the Jews to separate them from the nations, that externalized visible religion is being compared to internal invisible religion. Love, mercy, compassion, kindness is being compared to these ceremonial obedience, external laws. And we are told in this text that one is actually, get this, more important than the other. One of these things is actually more important than the other. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire love, not religiosity. God desires love and compassion and kindness before he desires our religious ceremonies. And so what we see is that Jesus is representing, he's quoting from the Old Testament, he is telling us that there is a hierarchy within the law of God. There is levels of importance in the law of God. Now, just in case you think that I'm, I'm, I'm being sacrilegious again here, let me just show you where Jesus makes this even more clear. Stay in Matthew, but turn to chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 is one of the more entertaining chapters in the Bible because this is where Jesus is just letting the Pharisees have it. Jesus is fed up with the Pharisees and he's just letting them have it. And he gives them a multiplicity of woes to you, woes to you, judgments and rebukes. And this one is interesting. Look at verse 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected this, listen to this, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus tells us very clearly that within the law of God, there are laws that are heavier than the others. They weigh more than others. They're more consequential than the others. And clearly, he, the example he gives is he compares this internal religion, justice, faithfulness, love, to the external, tithing. And, and the Pharisees were very clear not just to tithe, but they would make sure to tithe in front of everybody. 
Everyone knew what they were tithing, and they were tithing the expensive spices. So the Pharisees were very, very clear to, to be very honorable and faithful with their tithing. Everyone knew the Pharisees were faithful to tithe. They went above and beyond, and they would tithe the really valuable stuff, the really expensive stuff. They were very religious. Out, on the outward, if you were to look at them, you'd say, wow, that's a very religious person. They really care about the law of God. They sacrifice a lot for that offering plate. But Jesus is saying, while you're religious on the outside, your hearts are corrupt. You don't care about faithfulness or justice or love. You don't care about people. You care about your religion. And Jesus says, one of those things is actually more important. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law. There's a hierarchy here. And the Pharisees missed it. And by the way, that explains his really, really funny uh, analogy in verse 24. I one time read a book that said that Jesus is the world's greatest uh, cartoonist, comic cartoonist, political cartoonist, whatever you call him. And that's so true. Can't you just picture verse 24 perfectly like in, in, the, in the cartoon section? Can't you just picture those, those, those overdramatic pictures of, of a Pharisee sitting there with a bowl of soup and there's a huge camel sitting in the soup. And then the Pharisee starts complaining because a tiny little gnat got into his suit and he takes it out. That's what Jesus is saying. They're willing to eat soup that has a camel in it. But they're complaining because this tiny little microscopic gnat got into the soup. What are they doing? They are neglecting the camel of the law. The heavy parts of the law. Justice, mercy, love, faithfulness. And they're focusing on the gnats of the law. The, the little ceremonies that we do. There's a hierarchy here. And the Pharisees flipped it on its head. The Pharisees have not defined true religion as love and justice and faithfulness, which is externalized in ceremonies. They've made ceremonies true religion. This is what it means to be religious. And Jesus says, no, it's not. John Calvin made the same point in his commentary. He said it was the design of the evangelist here to show how superstitiously the Pharisees were attached to outward and slight matters so as to make holiness consist in them entirely. If you were to ask a Pharisee, what's your ideal religious person? Who's the holy person? They would, people who are obeying the ceremonial laws. But what's the true answer to that? Who's the holy person? Who's the religious person? The person who loves God and loves neighbor. That's true religion. Ceremonies are not the heart of religion. They're important. They're important because what does Jesus say at the end of 23? He doesn't say, I wish you would have stopped doing the ceremonial parts and just focused on the faith and love. No. He says you should have been able to do these things without neglecting one or the other. So Jesus is not bashing the ceremonies. He's not saying they're unimportant. He's not saying they don't matter. He expected the Jews to follow them, but the, what the Pharisees did is they followed them to the extent they applied them in such of ways that it canceled out love and goodness and kindness. And it got to the point where you could be on the Sabbath and you could have someone fall in a ditch and break their leg and the Pharisees would say, I can't pull you out because there's no grabbing and pulling allowed on the Sabbath. They've neglected love and mercy and faithfulness and justice to ad adhere to their interpretation of ceremonies. And pulling someone out of that ditch is far more important than the ceremony. The person matters more than the ceremony. 
David mattered more to Ahimelech than the showbread. David was more important than the bread. The person, the human being in front of him was more important than the externalized religion. If one of those Pharisees were the priests of that day, they would have sent David away hungry. Because one of the worst temptations in all of religion is to make holiness consist entirely in our ceremonies. And by the way, this is relevant today because it's October. And October is Reformation Month. We're getting ready, counting down the days till we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. And I say that's important because this is, if I had to summarize the problems of the Roman Catholic Church, it's, it would probably be boiled down to this. This is what Luther and the original reformers were seeing in the Roman Catholic Church. Over time, the Roman Catholic Church replaced the heart of religion with ceremonies. That Rome became so encumbered with feasts and pious acts and these different modes of worship and these different external things and holy dresses that people were getting away, even the priests, not just the lay people, even the priests were allowed to live godless, immoral lives with no fear of God, but they were going through the motions perfectly, so they were still holy. This is exactly what Luther saw in his day. Luther went in from town to town to lecture and he saw the priests were sexually immoral. They, they didn't care about the law of God. They didn't care about people. But you know what? They said all their Hail Marys every day. And they went to Mass every day. And they tithed really, really well. And they, they did the sign of the cross and they genuflected. They went through the religious motions and to them that was holiness. And that was holiness to the Pharisees. And Jesus says to me, that's not holiness. There is a weightier matter of the law. What is true religion to Jesus? James tells us in chapter 1, verse 27 of his epistle, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What does religion, what does a religious person look like? If you were to ask, you know, if we were to go and knock on people's doors and say, hey, just describe, when you think of a religious person, describe what is a religious person. And so many people would lead with ceremonies. Someone who wears a collar and wears a special dress and they pray eight times a day and they tithe and they go to church every single week. That's a religious person. Someone who's been baptized, someone who always goes to Mass, someone who always does. They would have all of these religious rites. That's the religious person. But James says, when I think of a religious person, I think of someone who loves people. Someone who takes care of the neediest and most helpless among us. Someone who actually cares about living a holy life unstained from the world. Holiness and love is more important than our ceremonies. Our ceremonies aren't unimportant. But true religion is not found in ceremonies. It's found in love. And we learn that from 1 Samuel 21. We learn that Ahimelech was more concerned with David than with the holy bread, with the person in front of him. That was true religion. He was being a good pastor. And that's why Jesus uses him as his example. Jesus, you're condemning me for eating wheat, a little snack on the Sabbath? Do you remember what David did? Do you remember what Ahimelech did for David? Do you have a problem with that? Because I don't. Now, let me clarify a couple clarifications, but this one is the most important one. Here's what it probably sounds like I'm saying. It probably sounds like I'm saying because there's a hierarchy in the law, 
There are times when it's okay to break the law in order to fulfill something else. And that's actually not what I'm saying. I do not believe Jesus' point in Matthew 12 is to say, sometimes in a fallen world, we fall into a position where we can only do evil, and you should do the lesser of two evils. Jesus is not advocating here for a lesser of two evils argument. He's not saying, well, yeah, you technically have to break that law and be unlawful, but it would be worse to break that law, so you break that law. No, Jesus is not saying that. What Jesus is actually instead doing is he is showing people what is the purpose of the ceremonies. Why did God give us the ceremonies? Why are they there? And then once we understand their purpose, then we can understand how to apply them. So Jesus was not telling the Pharisees it's sometimes okay to break the law. Jesus was telling the Pharisees that what me and David and the priests and every other example give didn't break the law. Ahimelech did not break the law. If you truly understood the law and if you truly understood the purpose of the law, you would regularly grant and become aware that this is a scenario that is permissible. He wasn't breaking the law. And I think, again, we see that because he was concerned about the cleanliness of the men. He was not under the impression that he was breaking the law. He was under the impression that this law has particular applications that don't apply to this scenario. But it was built in. Goodness, mercy, and love was built into the law. It was never God's intention for these ceremonial laws to cancel out love and justice and kindness. Here's what happened over the centuries. The Jewish people, as I said, had these huge oral traditions which added copious laws and requirements. And what Jesus is exposing is that these traditions actually ended up canceling out the law. So we know the traditions were wrong. Let me just give you a couple examples of these. Because if you are not a Christian but a Jewish person and you follow Jewish practice today, you're still bound by these traditions. Let me give you just a couple of them. Uh, a truly faithful uh, Jewish person is not allowed to brush their teeth on the Sabbath. Because that involves scraping, and the Old Testament law said you're not allowed to scrape on the Sabbath. Truly Orthodox Jews need to pre-tear their toilet paper on Friday night. You are not allowed to use the restroom and tear off a piece of toilet paper, because the Old Testament talked about how you weren't allowed to tear things. So you are not allowed to use toilet paper, at least tear toilet paper off of a roll on the Sabbath. One of the more debated issues uh, among Jewish people today is in the Old Testament, you were told you were not allowed to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And so Jews today have vigorous debates about whether you can use electricity on the Sabbath. The, I, I, I one time read a story of, of in, in New York of this highly Jewish uh, center of the city where many Jews lived in these apartments and on the Sabbath they couldn't leave their house because the only way to get down was, via, was through an elevator and when you push a button on an elevator it creates a spark and a spark is technically a fire so it's sinful to push an elevator button on the Sabbath because you kindle a fire. These are the kinds of serious things that are happening. The, the Pharisees became so obsessed with holiness in ceremonies that they dove so deeply into the ceremonies that they lost the point of the ceremonies. And then they started to create all of these applications that you would never create if you truly understood the point of the ceremony. So now they're at a place where they're literally telling the disciples that they're technically farmers when they pick a little grain and eat it on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus is saying, you're the kind of people who would rather someone starve to death, although he's not saying his disciples were about to starve to death, but the, 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 the logical outworking of their system is you would rather see someone starve to death or die in a ditch than break a ceremony which was never intended to prevent you from helping people. And we most clearly see that at the end of the verse when he heals the man on the Sabbath. And what do he say? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It has never been against the law to do good on the Sabbath. So yes, it has always been lawful to heal on the Sabbath. That's not, uh, you're not technically breaking the rules, but it's better to break this rule than to break that rule. No, you're not breaking any rules when you heal on the Sabbath. That's Jesus' point. The Pharisees said you were, but you weren't. That's Jesus' point. And by the way, this is uh, an interesting application of this. Is this is why in the Reformed world, uh, we don't get upset with doctors or nurses or surgeons or police officers who have to work on Sundays. Because it is lawful to do good on the Lord's Day. If someone has a heart attack on Sunday morning, do you really think the law of God would require a surgeon to say, you know, I'm really sorry, but I got church today. Sorry. You're driving down the road on a Sunday morning. You see someone get into a car accident. Their car flips. They're hanging out the window. They need help. Ooh, I don't want to be late for church. Of course not. But that's where the Pharisees went. And why did they go there? Because they lacked true hearts, true love for God, true love for neighbor, and they turned religion into all about ceremonies. This is most clearly seen in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. You can mark it down. This is the same account of this uh, the same, same account here. But Mark tells us something Jesus said that isn't told us in Matthew 12. And what Jesus says is he says that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. He's telling them the purpose of these ceremonies. The, the ceremonies were given to us to be a gift. We weren't created so that God could have these awesome ceremonies fulfilled. God gave us these ceremonies because we're awesome. Because <laughs> he loves us. Some people have abused that text to say it means we can do whatever we want on the Sabbath. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, hey, man was made for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath for man, so you, you can do whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. We still had laws to obey. But the purpose of saying is he's saying, if you truly understand why God made the Sabbath, then you will understand how to apply its laws. And when you realize that the purpose of the Sabbath is to be a blessing to us, it's to help us, it's, it's, to, it's to refresh us and encourage us and give us rest. If you realize the Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing to us, then that helps you see how extreme and unbiblical it is when a man is starving to death to refuse him food. The holy bread was not made to be a curse, but a blessing. Ahimelech broke no law. It was lawful for him to help someone in his time of need. The symbolism of that bread was less important than David. And so this is a good message for us. It's a good warning for us to not fall into the Roman Catholic Church, to not define religion purely in our ceremonies. Although I would say that the evangelical church probably has the issue on the other way. I think the message that's more important for the church in America today is that ceremonies matter. Uh, and and that's, so that's our second clarification. I know I've already said this, but let me just reiterate one more time. Let's not overcorrect to this message and hear me saying that outward ceremonies have no meaning at all. Baptism, it doesn't matter. What really matters is that you believe in Jesus. 
the Lord's Supper, eh, it doesn't matter. What really matters is that you believe in Jesus. Going to church on Sunday, eh, you, don't, you don't have to go to church to be saved. Right? You just need Jesus. You don't need to go to church on Sunday. You don't need to pray. You can, you can go to heaven and not pray. Religious piety matters. It's very important. It's not like Ahimelech, after he gave David the showbread, turned around and said, you know what? I guess this stuff doesn't really mean anything. I'm just going to start giving it out to people. That wasn't his response. Ahimelech is not teaching us, and Jesus is not teaching us, that following the law doesn't matter, that ceremonies don't matter, that piety doesn't matter, that religiosity doesn't matter. It does matter. But the application is that it can be abused. But when we start with the weightier issues of the law, love for God and love for neighbor, and then we work out towards our ceremonies and we keep everything in its proper place, that is what beautiful religion looks like. The Lord's Supper and baptism, these are sacred things and these are important things and we cannot desecrate these things. We cannot take them lightly. We cannot act like they don't matter. But these external ceremonies do not compare to the heart of true religion. Love for God and love for neighbor. So in conclusion, beware of turning pure religion into monotonous ceremonies. Our ceremonies are never a replacement for the things that they signify. Coming to church is never more important than actually being transformed by the church to love your neighbor well and worship God better. Being baptized is never more important than actually having the cleansing of sin and the resurrection from the dead, which baptism signifies by faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is never more important than actually believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. Ceremonies are a poor substitute for saving faith in Jesus Christ and love for your neighbor. And so let's be like Ahimelech as a people and as a church. Let's understand God's law rightly and let's see that love for God, love for neighbor can be married beautifully with ceremonies. It can be married beautifully with religiosity. May we be a church that never sacrifices one for the other like the Pharisees. That we never take our ceremonies lightly but we never become externally religious while missing the heart of true religion. 